0: Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host this week, Liz Flora, and our guest today is Richard Christensen, the founder of Flamingo Estate. Richard, it's great to have you here today.
1: Very lovely to be here. Nice to see you.
0: How are you doing?
1: I'm great. I'm very good. Almost ready for Christmas and uh, the end of a wild, wild adventurous year.
0: So Richard, prior to founding Flamingo Estate, you've had a long career with your creative agency. Do you want to give the listeners some background on Chandelier Creative?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it all kind of bleeds into each other. I came to America and started, worked in magazines, worked in, in different things and started my agency 16 years ago and um, and built a business that ultimately was, um, you know, sort of three offices, in LA and, and New York and Paris, and um, 60 employees, and uh, was working with um, some of the brands that we all know and love lots of luxury goods brands, Hermes and Cartier, and lots of people that um, I always dreamed of working with. And uh, I, uh, you know, we can talk more about this in a minute, I'm sure, but obviously that, that all sort of slightly took a, a change during COVID and sort of this wild adventure unfolded um, after that.
0: And when did you first? find the
1: estate well so it's such a funny story and um and and such a uh, a crazy synchronistic one I was on a photo shoot in Los Angeles uh and for years I lived in New York I should say at this point it's important for maybe what we talk about later maybe like many people and yourself included I had I had spent my whole life at work you know I I think I spent more room, more time rather, in the four walls of that office in Soho than I did in any other place in the world. And it, it consumed, I started the agency when I was 27. It consumed the rest of my twenties, all of my thirties and into my forties. And, um, and so really, and, and, and maybe part of the, the background that's really important here is I also grew up in, in outback Australia, my parents are honey farmers. And um, really um, as a kid, just dreamed of coming to New York and working in luxury goods. And I used to say to everyone at the office that um, our job was to fight for fantasy because the, the real world was so boring. You know, we wanted s- fashion and we wanted beauty and we wanted all those amazing things. And so, um, so that was sort of why we started working in, well, I started working in, in the advertising and creative stuff. All that to say, um, I was on a photo shoot in Los Angeles I gave everyone on the photo shoot honey, because I'm, I was a beekeeper in New York. I had a little property up at Long Island. And, um, and it's a little bit more complicated than this, but the short story of this is, um, someone on the shoot said, oh my God, you're a beekeeper. I said, yes. And they said, um, there's a strange man who lives on my street who has a seven acre garden, seven acres in the middle of Los Angeles, like in the middle of suburbia, this monstrous garden. Um, he's." he's very old. He never leaves the house. He's a hoarder. Uh, his partner of 65 years just died. Could you come and put some bees in? And so I did. Um, I came, I went over, I met this man at the gate, this old man wearing a leopard print G string and a red silk bathrobe. And he was like this dirty old man and and old and so and so, you know, naughty. And so, um, I was like, oh, dirty old man, I can roll with you. I, that, this is fun. Like, so I, 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 bought, I came in, we looked at the bees. I put some bees in. And oh, my God, I just saw this garden, this amazing garden. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like sort of my dream. And it was all run down and really, really, really overgrown and, um, and dead in many parts. And anyway, that was, um, God, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Maybe not even that. Let's, let's say seven years ago, for argument's sake. Several years went by, a couple of years went by before I actually purchased the house, which is another funny story, which I can tell you about if you want
0: The estate itself has a really interesting history, right? Do you want to go into that
1: yeah i mean the it has a funny history the the I love it when places have a you know a genius loci of sorts, and this one really did i I met this man as I said for years, I would come and see him, and then um he said you know, I said, Oh my God, you're, you're 90, like 90 something. You're too old to even climb up the hill. Uh, to this guy, John was like, you know, you should sell this house to someone who restored it. And he's like, well, why don't you restore it? And I was like, Oh my God, no, I hate Los Angeles. I don't know how to drive. I never learned how to drive because I always lived in big cities. And, um, I can't afford it. I have a business. I have a payroll. I can't afford a seven acre house in Los Angeles. And he sort of said, well, how much can you afford? And I sort of gave him a number as a joke and and he, he said, okay, okay. You've been really good to me, Richard, um, if you pro- and you love the garden. If you promise to restore it, if you promise not to sell it, I'll sell it to you for that much, but you have to promise not to see inside the house before you buy it. And I'd never seen inside the house. I'd only come to visit the garden but for the whole time I'd seen it. And um, so anyway, what a wild, crazy thing, right? And I was like, what's in there? It must be like some amazing art or, you know, an old Rolex in the drawer or something. I was so excited. Um, and what, what I found when we got in there, was the house was filled with uh, hundreds of thousands of old porn films. This was uh, this this house had been a porn studio from the fifties through to the sort of early eighties, and there was sort of a editing room and a little cinema and sort of like slings from mirrors on the ceilings and slings on the ceilings and a room full of sex toys and all that sort of stuff. And 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 obviously, you know, hundreds of thousands of people had been there to have some fun to have some pleasure. Um, it's interesting because the sex is easy to joke about, but what else happened there was that photographers and artists and um, chefs and gardeners and all these people would had clearly been there from the fifties onwards as sort of a little secret hedonistic playground of sorts. And um, but most of the porn was gay porn, so if you think about the climate in the fifties. And what I now know about the two people that owned the house before me, they had met in the Navy. um, They had fallen in love. They were, they had left the Navy. They'd moved to Los Angeles, uh, to San Francisco and started a bodybuilding magazine and moved to LA. And so kind of had this, what I imagine was a very kind of DL under the radar, sort of hedonistic lifestyle, but one that was clearly contagious in the sense that so many people were there. And, um, and had fun there. Not the sex and the porn aside, it seemed to be this place of pleasure and um, and restorative pleasure and uh, basic human needs: sex and food and music and, and art and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so what a wild kind of like baton to be handed. Um, and and obviously, um, and a little bit. Um, and I'm sure this is what we'll talk about today. A little bit. Um, my own personal sort of, um, let's call it, rebirth um, kind of mirrored the house being restored and the garden coming back to life. In many ways, I've always said that. So I came back to life with the garden and, uh, and things changed quite a
0: lot. How do you approach a renovation on a property like this?
1: Um, <clears throat> slowly. Um, we started with the garden. It's my favorite room of the house. Uh, my mom and dad came from Australia first. And we planted, and we planted, and we planted. Um, you know, ultimately, what was hundreds of trees. Um, and then I had met, um, I met these amazing creatives, um, these two architects in Paris, Studio Co, um, Carl and Olivier. They had designed a hotel called the Chiltern Firehouse, which many of your listeners might know, and, and the Saint Laurent Museum in Morocco, and all sorts of other things. And uh, I met them through work. Um, fell madly in love with them, and um, we together embarked on a many-year journey of, of restoring the house and traveling the world and looking for things that would go there ultimately. And um, and also they bought um, this amazing landscape architect, Arnold Cassius, who came and He really helped map out the original plan for what has now become this monstrous garden. And um, so soon after, then joined by Jeff Hutchinson, who's a horticulturalist, and a lot of other really talented people who um, really poured their heart and soul into Bringing this thing back to life, this little hidden jewel, which is really remarkable and a testament to so much hard work from so many people.
0: So, what was the transition like going from New York to LA? Uh, You know, it's such a cliche,
1: isn't it? I and it is that cliche, you know, from vodka to green tea. Um, I uh, I fell madly in love with Los Angeles. I had resisted it for so long, and um, you know, I think there's something about the blue sky there and the sunshine that is. you know, timeless. And, um, you know, a couple of things, a couple of interesting things happened that, um, I, I sort of just had this decision, like many, many of your listeners, might, I've been in New York for, you know, let's call it 20 years. I had, I was so tired. I was so burnt out. I was traveling so much. I was JetBlue's number one customer, uh, several years in a row because I'd used to fly back and forth so much. And I was so proud of that, like, oh my god, I'm the number one customer, and now I'm sort of so ashamed by it. I just was really, quite honestly, just like living through work. And um, so, LA kind of gave me a minute just to stop uh, and, and take a beat. Um, I had a breakup. I kind of went through some life stuff that was uh, at the time tough. And the garden really kind of gave me um, solace a bit. I've I've said this many times to the team and my friends. Have, Mother Nature's um, doctor, therapist, and friend, and I believe that we started making tinctures. Actually, Jeff, our horticulturist, who I just mentioned a minute ago, I remember he gave me a tincture because I was going to Hong Kong for work and for a shoot. I used to go to Hong Kong so much, and we still do. had a lot of plants there. I used to jump off the plane and go straight to work, you know, and he, and I was always so tired and he gave me a tincture and I really thought it was so witchy and a little bit woo woo. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is stupid, but I took it and I was there and I, I was like, wow, I feel great. I'm not tired. This is amazing. What's in this thing. And that was like the, the, the kind of first peeling of the onion. I was like, Oh, we started Jeff's Jeff, his credit, um, started giving me lots of other stuff. And um, the other thing that we discovered uh, the water from the, the bathrooms run into runs directly into the garden at the estate, and um, just literally just runs into the garden because water is such a precious commodity in Los Angeles, right? We just want to save all of it. And we noticed that um, the roses started turning brown. That um, the soap and the hand wash I was using, which is from a brand that we all know and love, um, was turning my was killing my plants. And I, I remember thinking why would we use something on our skin that we can't put on our plants and so jeff started making um some soaps and and uh, we have a herbalist ash who would come to the garden she started making stuff and we slowly started just making stuff for ourselves um that when i think about it now we're just like the little like slight pushes into a bit more of a healthy life than i'd a lot more healthy life than i had in new york you know better better self-care and, and prioritizing pleasure for yourself and uh, like good soap and good shampoo and um, you know and good music and good wine and good friends and all that sort of stuff as well so it was sort of just like a, a little bit of a change all at once and um, and then work-wise just to answer your question the other important thing is um, we opened an office in LA then and I realized that Los Angeles had very, very, very few good bookstores. I guess like New York does too now. Actually, very few. There was like three, and um, you know, I had a big creative team who were really thirsty for inspiration and nowhere to find it unless they drove an hour. I wanted to read French Vogue in the bath. I had to drive to Santa Monica, which is like at least forty-five minutes, if not an hour. And um, I was like, "Stuff that we we need to open a bookstore, and then we'll have all the magazines and books that we want." And so. Not far from the estate, just down the street, we opened a bookstore, a huge bookstore um and I was sort of determined that it would become just a place that all my creative friends would come to that would stock all the good books I used to have in New York and all the good magazines and um that um really was like those two things together the house coming the garden coming together, and the bookstore um were was, was sort of two of the pillars that made. Flamingo State, the brand possible.
0: Yes. Yeah, so when was the brand officially born?
1: Um, so, we were making stuff for friends, as I said. I was making honey, making candles, we were making um, soap and stuff in my bathroom and giving the rest away. Really, honestly, the, the line in the sand was the very first Friday of COVID. And Jeff, again, now a horticulturalist, uh, has, and now I realize has been sort of the the, the door opener to so many of these moments. He knew a a farmer, a regenerative farmer, organic farmer who um, was supplying vegetables to restaurants in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, remember the restaurants were closed. And so I remember she said, oh my God, I'm going to lose my farm. I can't sell my vegetables. I'm going to lose my farm. And my parents had lost their farm when I was a kid. I really had a very, oh, just a very visceral knee jerk reaction to that. And um, I was like, stop that. Um, why doesn't she bring her vegetables to the bookstore? The bookstore is also closed. We'll get rid of the books off the, off the counters. We'll just sell vegetables. And we'll sell them in the car park in the back. And that's what we did that first Friday of COVID. And I think that she thought we could sell a dozen boxes. That, that first Friday, we sold 300. The next Friday, we sold 600. Um and today's delivery day, it's Friday. Today, delivery day in Los Angeles, we have 35 trucks. We have delivered to uh, fresh produce now to well over 100,000 homes. Um, and you know, an interesting thing happened very quickly. Two, I mean, I guess two things happened very quickly, which will never happen again. The first one was that um another farmer came and knocked on our shoulder. It was like, hey, I'm making I grow mushrooms. Can you can you sell my mushrooms? And then a flower farmer and then a citrus farmer and slowly one farmer became two farmers became 10 became 60 became 75 farms now and um that was one thing um and really started to think about the food we ate during COVID especially you know regenerative really good sourced food um grown in the very best soil by the very best farmers um this sort of I I started to think oh my god like food is medicine this is amazing and um and through some fits and starts, that business started to grow. Um, we just would sell out every week. Every week, we would just sell out of vegetables. And someone called the health department because we quite rightly shouldn't have been selling them from a bookstore. And so we started doing deliveries. And then we got um, we got so that of anyone that wanted to be a driver, anyone, any waiter, any barman, anyone that was out of work, we would give them a delivery van. And um, got a warehouse in Glendale, then a second, then a third. And just... Um, you know, we, over the course of the last year and a half, um, what started as a couple of boxes in the car park um, has become a business, a really big business. The second thing that, it, that was interesting is that my agency kind of fell apart for a minute. You know, everyone stopped spending money. And I was really scared. The, the thing I had worked my whole life for, uh, and, and I was so terrified. The only thing that I used to really like, the thing that used to keep me running every day was like, oh my God, I never want to go into a position where we can't pay our rent or pay our bills. And my mom and dad had lost their farm as I said when I was a kid. So that idea of like losing your business, um, it was my worst fear. And so like COVID manifested that, you know, we lost everyone very quickly and couldn't pay our rent uh, in, in the offices. Uh, had this huge billowing payroll. and um, so. I said to the team, let's um, let's take that lens of what you've learned in the last 16 years and put it into the garden. I know you just want to work on Hermes, but now it's time to sell mushrooms and uh, citrus. And so that's what they did. And to their credit, I think um, that's one of the reasons why the brand from the very get go started to look nice and good and became fun on Instagram. And also my creative friends, photographers I knew were not traveling. They were out of work. Uh, I said, come to the garden. I know you want to shoot fashion, but just come and shoot vegetables. And so, um, and artists I knew and chefs I knew who were not working and sort of everyone that wasn't working came to Flamingo State and started interpreting Mother Nature. And, you know, I mentioned that, uh, you remember at the beginning of this interview, I said like the, the house in its porn heyday was this hedonistic enclave for all these creative people it sort of became that again in a way, you know, we had chefs and musicians and artists and photographers and my whole team. And really just like, while so many of my friends sadly were treading water during COVID, we were actually having the most interesting creative time we would ever had. And um, so it was interesting. Ultimately the agency, I should say, the agency ultimately bounced back through the very, very hard work of the team in New York and uh, it's doing really well now, but it's so funny that for a moment when it wasn't, um, we sort of got resourceful.
0: So, coming from your creative studio background, can you tell us more about the inspiration for the branding and the aesthetic of the brand?
1: Hmm. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the number one thing that that I craved was abundance. Uh, was this idea of everything. The garden is kind of like that. If you think about the garden as your guide, you know, I just, if if we were ever to photograph oranges, it wouldn't be two oranges on a white background. It would be 10,000 oranges in a, in a fountain, or not just a, a one flower it would be as many flowers as we could put in a wagon. Um, and so I think in many ways, we were just sort of resisting against kinfolky you know, quiet, you know, organized neatly world. We were really, for me, person is running towards color and abundance and, you know, the just like overwhelming joy of, of, you know, taste and smell and and texture. And so really that's kind of where we started. It was just very much that, uh, which is very much about the property too. The property is just like, you know, this sort of the garden is this just like overwhelming, you know, um visceral reaction when we walk through it. So um, in terms of the smells and the colors and that sort of stuff. So it was actually just like very natural. It was really just a reflection of what's there now. Um, I think the other thing about this world that's interesting, vegetables, for example, which is where we started before we got into body products and stuff like that is, um, you know, very agrarian. It's very farmer Joe. Like it's very earnest. Uh, it's not very sexy. Um, And even like in the natural space, although obviously there are exceptions to the rules, naturals, natural like bath and body products or or kitchen essentials and that sort of stuff can get very Etsy. And so for me, it was important that we honor all these ingredients and all these formas with that degree of visual care that we would have given Cartier or Hermes um, when we were working with them previously. And so, and and quite rightly too, because those people... You know, that, that I think that was the other interesting thing I learned was um, I thought I had worked with the most creative people in the world. I had no idea that actually the most creative people in the world are the people who are growing mushrooms, who are growing citrus, who are growing biodynamic herbs, because these people taught me that mushrooms can help with anxiety and depression and that raspberries are good for sexual health and sperm production and mugwort is good for dreaming and um, these people who know everything about what they do and I think for me that was very refreshing when I'm in a world where you're in a world where thanks to Instagram we all kind of feel like we know everything about everything so to meet someone who geeks out about one thing and one thing only is so refreshing today um, and you know these are people who don't answer their phone for a week and take two weeks to answer an email and are not like socially savvy in terms of social media and stuff like that. The growers, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, their priority is growing things from the land. So um, I think one of the reasons maybe why we also had a really great year and a half is because um, we sort of brought that lens to that world, which it, it may not have had before. We'll be right back after this message.
0: Your products span so many different categories. What is your best-selling category right now?
1: Mm, well, it was, well, let me, right now it's candles because Oprah made how candles her favorite thing two weeks ago. And we went from selling, you know, a handful of candles a day to selling two and a half thousand candles an hour, which was wild. Um, so candles are doing great. They've always done okay, but now they're doing great. Uh, and then the, the sort of biggest category is bath and body. So hand soap um, body wash, shampoo, um, and, and bar soap and stuff like that. And then, um, the kitchen pantry stuff follows, um, after that, olive oil and honey and that sort of stuff. I think in all we've probably made, God, I don't know, 150 products in the last year and a half. And really that's just because, um, you know, people would just come and see me. They'd come, they'd knock on the gate and they'd say, Hey, I'm an olive farmer. I've got the best olives in California and they're growing in the best soil at the best altitude, can we make olive oil? And I'd be like, I, 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 how hard can that be? Let's do that. And, um, and someone came and said, I've got grapes, let's make a wine. And then I've, I've got peppers, let's make hot sauce. And I've got, um, I don't know, um, wasabi, let's do a mustard. And um, you know, it really just, um, it just happened that way. People heard about us and they had amazing things they were growing. And I just like, how hard can that be? Let's make it. Let's make it really, really, really good. Let's make the very, very best version of the hot sauce or the peanut butter or the, the mustard or whatever we can. And, um, you know, I'm really, I'm kind of super proud about that. I'm also very happy that we've supported so many farmers. And I know we've saved a couple of farms, hand on my heart. I really know that. Um, and now that we've sort of past that chapter, uh, I'm just like really excited to keep, supporting regenerative farmers. And it's not organic farmers, not like good farmers, but regenerative farmers who are trying to get rid of chemicals, who are getting rid of pesticides, who are um, you know, slowly but surely trying to turn the tide on um, the environmental practices of, of how we eat and, and shop and, and clean ourselves today. Um, so I, I'm, I, I've got very motivated around that since since we started.
0: And we know Oprah can have a magical effect on brands. What is the scaling process like with the holiday crunch um, in effect right now?
1: Well, we, we were prepared for it. I mean, we, um, we really, uh, we, we obviously sort of sell out of everything we make. Uh, and part of that is because we're not tethered to, generally not tethered to big supply chain issues. You know, we're, we're, we're growing not far from us normally most of our suppliers are in california with some exceptions um and we're making everything ourselves we're not outsourcing anything it's all being made internally or 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 right next to us and so um you know really we've been able to kind of weather that storm really well and our lead time is quite short because it's sort of let's make some jam and we do it you know and then, then we sell it and we've got enough so um so so far so good i think we hit a crunch. This coming year, you know, I should say that we. Let me say it this way: this is a better way to say it. We plant a tree for every product we sell. Um, by the early ne- by early next year, we will have been we will be on the way to planting one hundred and fifty thousand trees. So we've we've sold a lot of good bottle products in the last year and a half, and um, you know, a lot of that is word of mouth. It's in Los Angeles, it's New York, it's a few other cities. Um, early next year we have we've entered into a wholesale agreement with this amazing beauty company in Australia called Mecca you might know them that maybe like Sephora but I think much better they're brilliant people they're great they're incredible retailers they're really smart they also believe that um, that sort of pleasure is a priority and they like this idea of reinventing sort of a modern apothecary I went to see them um, earlier in this year and uh, I went home to see my mom and dad and I met them and I never forget this conversation because um, the amazing team that's there, I remember one of the people said, "We're going to give you a wall in 150 stores um, and we're going to put you next to Byredo. And I, I was like, wait, we're not, Hey, you know, we're not, you know, we're not a beauty brand. Right. And like, no, you are a beauty brand because beauty is about getting good sleep and drinking with water and eating good food and getting good rest. And they are all the things that you're doing. And um, and so, we just started now making a um, a much broader assortment of products, that sort of all now archetyped under different need states: sleep and calm, sex, that sort of stuff, and uh, building products over that around that. So, anyway, I mentioned that to say, now we're kind of really a grown-up business, and uh, we enter our first, um, you know, kind of proper, about to enter our first proper year of. Uh, really interesting expansion outside our backyard. So this is like going to be a really interesting time for us next.
0: How are you approaching distribution right now? What is your breakdown of wholesale versus D2C?
1: It's almost entirely D2C. And we have a, with a few exceptions, we have some stores that I know and love, which I I did stocked our candles and some stuff like that. Um, Irwin, you know, what the supermarket in LA stocked out honey and things like that, um, but largely, we don't need it. You know, as I say, we sell out of everything. We have a really good relationship with our customers. My cell phone number is on half of the things we do. Like, people call me if they don't like something. And, um, you know, we have a a really nice, small, really engaged, uh, wonderful team who take care of everyone. So, so far, we're good. And actually, we just its I was just talking about it today because we launched um, a cookbook this week. And we actually have seven books that we've just launched. Um, because my hope now is that Flamingo becomes really a touch point for education and inspiration from the green world for anyone that's got green thumbs and middle fingers. And so I'd gone to a big publisher uh, maybe a year ago. We're like six months in, and I was like, oh, I think there's something here. I want to do a book. And the publisher looked at me, they kind of laughed at me. They said, um, Well, you need a celebrity. You're not a celebrity. They kind of pitched into all us, sort of with old lady gardening books and I said no that's not what we're about um and so I don't know they were like oh we're going to take you know 50 percent, and we're going to distribute it for you and I was like I don't need you to distribute it for me I can distribute everything myself now and I really don't need to pay you half of my income to tell me that I need to be with the old lady gardening books um so you sort of after you we're just going to do it ourselves and so we did we we, we contacted um six of my, like really my idols, Jane Goodall, a naturalist, um, Terry Tempest Williams, uh, Alice Waters, um, Michael Pollan, who you might know, wrote that amazing book on magic mushrooms called How to Change Your Mind. And I said, I'd I'd like to republish your books and under the Flamingo umbrella and um, Flamingo editions. And so anyway, we, we, we've done it. We launched it. Everything's going well. Our cookbook just launched this week. And, you know, I think that I mentioned those just because I think the, everyone else is about distribution. And I think the book industry is a great example of where, like, you assume you need old fashioned, old world distribution, and you don't. We are more than selling everything we have made very, very well through our own channels, directly through the website or through Instagram, um, and without the need to, to rely too much on, on large like wholesale orders.
0: How do you categorize Flamingo Estate as a brand? Do you call yourself a lifestyle brand?
1: Uh yeah, I guess we I, you know it depends I guess on what you're coming for, right? I think we um we we call ourselves um a lifestyle brand and really but not even that that term feels so so sort of um it's just about everyday essentials from the for the bathroom and the kitchen. And and again that idea that sort of you know, I guess it's an interesting question because we've been in the fundraising process now for a little bit. We're looking. I've never done that before. I've never asked anyone for money. I'm the sort of person who doesn't check their ATM balance because I hate the idea of money, so I don't even look at it, you know? Um, I just type in how much money I need from the ATM and take a deep breath. So um, so to be in that like role now of like getting fundraising and building a business, it's interesting. And the number one criticism we've had from potential investors is, oh my God, Richard, you're doing too many things. you go got a hundred products, you're doing books and you're doing shampoo and you're doing of oil. And we don't understand how this all works together. And I need to remind them that the way it works together is what I said in the beginning is that mother nature is our doctor and our therapist and our friend, and you can have better sex and better sleep and less anxiety by using a different shampoo, having a different olive oil, drinking a better tea, having a different type of wine um, than you might otherwise get. And so I feel like we're sort of fighting Aesop in one corner and like, I don't know, Whole Foods in another, and um, you know, bunches of different people sort of carving out um, better versions of what they're doing. Um, just based on impeccable sourcing. And it's just so funny that people like to pigeon, I guess maybe in the investment world, but I think generally people like to just like pigeonhole you in one area. Um, and I think that that criticism of us being too broad and being too fast, um, to me feels um, uninformed because what all I'm trying to do is create everyday essentials that I wanna use in my own home and the, and the better version of those.
0: Yeah, and I saw in a video you did for Vogue that you mentioned Martha Stewart has visited the estate. Do you take inspiration from her business model?
1: I mean, I know I've known Martha for a while. Um uh, back in New York when I lived there, my agency did some work with her and she and I have become friends. And um I mean who isn't inspired by Martha, right? In in some way or another. She um she really for many of us, certainly for me, um, taught me that there was, there's absolutely nothing wrong uh, with like bringing some care and nuance now to like the everyday things you do in your home, to how you wash your clothes and how you clean your house and all that sort of stuff and, and, the, and the meals that you eat. So for sure, yes. Um, I think the interesting thing I learned from Martha, I remember uh, many years ago going to stay with her and I remember her. I remember going to pick apples with her and then we had apple pie and then there was something about a broken chimney that she needed to get fixed and something else about the car that was broken. I remember her being able to do all of this and I remember thinking, oh my God, this woman will never do anything that she doesn't know. How to do. Sorry, well, she'll never ask someone to do something that she doesn't know how to do herself. And I never forgot that. And so I think now that I've sort of just been learning all this stuff as I've gone along recently. I also really remember that I won't ask anyone to do something I don't know how to do myself, and I, I want to find out how to do it. I'm not a. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a horticulturalist. I'm none of those things, but I am very curious, and I am learning those things for myself. And um, and ultimately, like I think that's the other thing about COVID. When my life fell apart, when I was like really in free fall. Um, learning those things really like pulled, pulled my parachute open, you know, learning about treating myself better and eating better and, and getting rid of shitty friends and listening to good music and only drinking good wine and only eating good food. And, um, you know, getting rid, we've all had to think about this, right. Getting rid of the stuff in our life that does not work anymore and not being afraid of that. So um kind of like that from Martha too, right. Really just like unapologetically curious about the world. And so um, I've, been so grateful to meet her. She actually wrote the introduction to the cookbook that we just released, which was such a, oh my God, such a, I was so grateful that she did. You know, I, uh, I'm v- i very thankful for that. She's also very, I mean, she's come to over for dinner a few times. I, as you can imagine, it's a little, always a little bit of a sweaty palm moment when Martha comes for dinner because you're just like, oh my God, I'm like, oh, I don't mess this up. But so far, so good. So far, we're doing just fine.
0: I can't imagine the pressure, but I'm sure you're up to it. And you have all of this lifestyle content around the brand, such as the cookbooks and the recipes. How do you approach your content strategy and what do your customers want to read?
1: Oh, uh, it's such a good question. And you know, um, the only thing I ever produce is stuff I want to read myself. So um, it's that. I think, um, you know, I this was my world for 20 years. I used to do creative stuff for brands, right? What's so interesting is that what... I would never have told a client to do the things we've done stuff like uh, every Friday, I do a very long form email, which is a letter from me about what's going on in the garden and in my head and that sort of stuff. It's huge. It's not pretty. Um, it over indexes every other thing we do long, like, Oh my God, long form content doesn't work on Instagram. It works so well for us on Instagram. And, um, you know, so there's some, some really interesting things. I think if, if, People are curious, even in a world where people don't want to consume more than five seconds of content, um, things sort of poke through. So um, I guess it's that the only thing I can say, and I, I, I really hand on heart, I mean this. The few times I've asked someone else to write something for us or, um, you know, take over something, it hasn't done as well. I feel like when I write it or Emily or PJ, some of my like very close colleagues are writing something or photographing something um, because we truly live it and love it and breathe it. um, It just, I don't know. I think you can sense whether it's, whether it's a PR thing or whether it's real. And so, so far, um, every time I've done it myself, it's real. I'm, I'm in the Instagram. I answer the, I answer the comments. I like, I'm, even though we're, we're busy, I feel like that's almost the most important thing I can do is um, sort of just be the lens for that stuff. So, um, so that's the strategy. The strategy is not very It's not very, um, it's not very strategic. I'm just like writing about the stuff I love and we're just like doing it bit by bit.
0: And how do you describe your target demographic?
1: Um, um, oh my God, are you an investor? Um, that's such a good question. Um, you know what? I mean, we know the demographics, it's largely female. Um, and we sort of know the, you know, the things that they love and the brands that they love that sort of won't surprise you. Um, I think honestly, there's sort of two distinct groups. There is someone who's really interested in food and, and eating really well. And there's someone who's just interested in living really well and they buy the candles and the body products and that sort of stuff. And so, um, we feel like there's there really is like two consumer groups there. Um, and sometimes they cross over, but not, not a lot actually, which is interesting when you look at, Habits. Um, but, you know, I feel like it's people like you and me, it's people who are in their 30s and 40s and um, who are, you know, maybe just like trying to not be ashamed about making pleasure a priority again, whether that's about food or the products that they use.
0: Are millennials looking for curation the way that the older generations looked to Martha Stewart? Is that kind of a niche that you're providing? Um, I mean, I think we all need a little bit of. Um, nudging in the
1: right direction and and, and a point of view, right? And there's anything wrong with that. Um, Certainly, um, yeah, I mean, certainly if you look at the trends in terms of what's being purchased on the site, um, yes, people are excited for the information. They like the suggestions and that sort of stuff. Um, Although people ask a lot of questions. My God, like we're really like, there's no, I think that's the thing that's really interesting is there's also just like zero ability to fool people I think especially if you're a brand that's about transparency and sourcing transparency and all that sort of stuff that um, you really have to be very, very clear and and transparent about everything because we get, oh my God, we get asked so many questions about so many things. And, um, you know, I don't want to pretend we have all the answers. We don't. We really are trying our very best. And if we don't have it right, we're trying to make it better. Um, We're not perfect, but we're definitely trying to get there. Um, But it's a very interesting time, culturally, especially when we talk about sort of how we spend our money, who we give our money to. Um, you know, I feel like there are lots of opinions there and, and also how we source. the sourcing stuff comes up again, and again, and again, and again, and again. We get so many questions about it, um, which is great. It's awesome that people are asking those questions. Um, but I do notice that, that that's sort of an unexpected, a welcome, but unexpected surprise in terms of making products. It's just the degree of questioning we get Um, which is nice. But I think that also is largely a potentially a new cultural moment.
0: So looking forward to 2022, we've heard so much about the self-care effect over the course of the pandemic. Where is that at now?
1: You mean in terms of everyone's appetite for it or in terms of um, consumer demand or what's your what's your question there?
0: Yeah, is the self-care effect still going strong in terms of consumer demand?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I hope so. I think that um, whether or not we call it self-care or not, or we're just calling it mindful consumption, or whether we're calling it responsible sourcing or environmental responsibility, or um, just pleasure, um, I, 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 yes, and, and I hope it continues to. Um, you know, again, I I feel as though if you don't care about if you don't care about the environment and you don't care about sourcing at all. And you don't you don't care whether we're in a plastic bottle or not um, if you don't care about that stuff, I'd like to think there's still a lot of good things that you love about Flamingo state because it smells great and it's um, you know we're trying our very best to to bring in really interesting people and um, and you know, creatively um, trying to make sure we're ahead of the game in terms of what we produce and how we how we create it so I feel like even if you don't care about the stuff that I care about, which is the the impact of what we're doing um i still think there's nothing wrong with the timeless and um, you know forever beautiful idea of just taking a great hot bath or having a great glass of wine with someone and dancing in your living room listening to music you know and if you're going to do that make it the best bloody glass of wine you can have and the best bubble bath you can ever take um and that that hopefully is definitely never going out of fashion
0: and you mentioned Australia. What are your international expansion plans?
1: Australia's next, obviously. That's this year. Uh, we'll hit the Europe and the UK this year as well. Um, obviously, China and Asia is somewhere on the horizon for us. We think that will happen um, soon. Obviously, there's a lot of um, a lot of um, you know hurdles to get in there. One of the good things about starting with Australia is that Australia has some of the toughest labeling laws and sourcing laws in the world so uh, very much if we can get it right for australia and get all that paperwork squared away we're kind of good to go anywhere and so it's one of the reasons we're starting there first and foremost and then um yeah and then we'll see where the world takes us it's a shame we can't deliver fresh produce and fresh flowers to people around the world that's sort of like obviously like still the core of the brand and my favorite part of it it's where we get to have so much fun um, but you know, obviously everything that's in a bottle or a jar, it's free to people as well.
0: And what about products? Are you planning to expand into any new categories?
1: Um, honestly, where we are now, I think, um, having a place in everyone's bathroom and kitchen is great. Obviously, I'm, I'm obviously planning on expanding the books a lot more. Um, I think the place I'd, I'm curious about going next in a, in an aggressive way. Is what happens when the law around psilocybin changes and and magic mushrooms? This idea that we—I say that. Sorry, I'm backtracking a little bit. I say that because during the pandemic, antidepressant use in America uh, went from sixteen—a sixteen billion dollar industry to a thirty-two billion dollar industry, give or take. I can't remember the exact number, but it basically doubled. Um, That said to me that people are looking inward. People really need some self-care. They really need some. you know, calm and, and other things. You see the same trend happening in alcohol and, and recreational drugs and all that sort of stuff. So if, if my view is that mother nature, as I said, is our doctor, therapist and friend, and that we are about pleasure from the garden, when you can have a tablet once a day from magic mushrooms that you can microdose or take in a stronger potency that will be there for anxiety or focus or depression, Um, I want to be the first cap of the rank for that stuff. I really want us to deliver on that promise. So I think one place we will probably expand in a bigger way one day would be, uh, let's call it supplements, medicine, supplements, that sort of thing, Um, as long as it's sourced from the garden and hopefully through psilocybin once those laws change, which I hope they do. They need to. They're so out of date. So that's something I, I, I talk a lot about.
0: I've heard investors are excited about mushrooms. Have you come across that?
1: Yeah, yeah, people are lots of people are excited about it. I think what's getting in the way, of course, is the government's not excited about it yet. And even though academics are excited and scientists are excited and the medical community is excited and the finance community is excited, the government's not excited. And um, you know what I think the good news is that uh the laws started to change over on the west coast in Oregon, California is about to address it. Uh, you know, I think we saw the same slow, but then you know, more excited change when uh, marijuana was um, going through this a few years back. And now, obviously, you know, you can order a pizza in Los Angeles and marijuana on it. You know, so I think um, we'll find, it will find that hopefully it it will, um, it will start to change. Um, I have a lot of anxiety about my friends who are taking antidepressants for anxiety. And I, um, I really, and I've seen firsthand how good, psilocybin can be for you and um I, I really want to have a seat at that table um, and, I, and we have every right to do that um so so watch this space i think that'll be something for us at some point
0: so just a final question for today looking ahead to 2022 what are your biggest business goals
1: mm, um really i think um we kind of built the airplane while it was flying in every way, you know, we really did this stuff. As you know, it was I just shared. You know, it started from selling some vegetables at the back of the bookstore, and in a year and a half, we built something I'm really proud of. I think now we have um we have a really good team. We finally got sort of supply chain and, and logistics and organization like set up for success. So this will be our first proper year of you know a grown up business and. St- so I hope just more of the same, really. Um, I'd like more and more people to to find out about us. We're still very much like, although I'm very grateful for the success we've had, I still feel like we're very much still in, in a bubble and a little bit in an echo chamber. So obviously the more people that that now learn about us and the people we're working with and the farms we're working with and that sort of stuff would be really good. Um, and I think longer term, you know, I told you we're working with 75 farms and growers. Um, I maybe finish with this story. Um, Jeff, uh, a horticulturalist, was up in Ojai, um, up, which is above up, up north from Los Angeles, because we've been pulling citrus from a citrus farm there that we've been making um, marmalade from. And uh, next to this farm is another farm, another citrus farm. They're paid one fifth of the price of um, the farm that we pull from. They are on contract with the big uh, agriculture company. To make orange juice for them. And because they paid that price, um, they have to cut corners. You know, they're using glyphosate in the soil, they're using pesticides, they're, they're kind of pumping chemicals into the earth. Um, my dream is that we can take that, make enough, let's say, marmalade or citrus hand soap or whatever the product is, that we can take that farm and we can bring them into our system and we can slowly get the pesticides out of the soil and start paying them a fair market rate for that produce, which is higher than what they're getting now, which is higher than what they would get if they sold uh, to a wholesaler. But we'll only make progress if we start paying them that fair rate so they can start treating the planet properly. Then we do that to another farm and another farm and another farm. And maybe in 10 years time, we're not talking about uh, 75 farms. We're talking about 7,500 farms. And for me, do you remember when I said earlier that my agency used to say we were fighting for fantasy? For me, that's the fantasy I'm now fighting for, is that we could slowly but very surely um, take these other farms out of um, pesticides and out of that system and start flipping them one by one uh, and bring them into our family. And that to me would be great progress, both next year and for the next 10 years.
0: Well, Richard, this was great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. And we Hmm. look forward to learning about all of the new developments of Flamingo Estate. And um, keep us posted.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for the time. It's so nice to have a chat with you and have a great Christmas.
0: Thanks for listening to the Glossy
1: Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you're a true Skintellectual, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week.